Take your Bible, if you will, while you're still standing, and if you'll turn to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 31, Deuteronomy 31, and we'll read God's Word together, Deuteronomy 31 in your Scripture. We'll begin reading in verse number 6, Deuteronomy 31 and 6. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that does go before you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you. The context here is that Joshua is addressing the nation of Israel. Or, pardon me, Moses is addressing the the nation of Israel. And Moses is an old, old man at this point. He is about to die. He, God has revealed to him this is his very last message to the people. And so he is instructing the people of God as to the future. He knows that in a matter of weeks they will cross over the Jordan River, that they will be met by the armies of those adversaries, that uh, there will be a fight for their very existence, but that if they will pursue the will of God, that God will give them the land. And so this is an extremely important time in the life of the nation as Moses, the great prophet of God, addresses the people of God. And so what is his message? Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid. If you'll go down to verse 7, now Moses turns his attention to Joshua, and he says to him publicly in the sight of all Israel, Joshua, be strong and of a good courage. And then if you'll go to verse 8, he continues, and he says it again, he will be with you, he will not fail you, nor forsake you, and again he says, fear not. Now, we turn over to verse number 23. And so he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge and said, Be strong and of a good courage. And the last phrase of verse 23 says, And I will be with you. I will be with you. Fear not. Be of good courage. I will be with you. Now, we turn the page over to the book of Joshua, the next book, chapter number one. When we get to the book of Joshua, Joshua now has taken command of the people. What Moses was instructing them about is now happening. Joshua now turns to the people. And what is his message? Verse six, be strong and of a good courage. And in verse seven, he repeats himself. Only be thou strong and very courageous. And then down in verse 9, he repeats himself again. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. He continues, neither be thou dismayed. Dismayed in our King James Bible would have the equivalent today of Don't be confused. Don't let whatever it is out there that we're facing, don't let it confuse you. 
For the Lord your God is with you whithersoever you go. Now we go down to verse 18. He continues speaking to the children of Israel. And the very last phrase of verse 18 is, Only be strong and of good courage. And then we go clear over to verse 10, or chapter 10. And in chapter number 10, now they've defeated the city of Jericho and Ai and already accomplished a great deal of what they want. But now they're spreading out to take the land that God has promised them. And he again gathers the people, and he said to them in verse number 25 of Joshua 10, Fear not, don't be confused, be strong, and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Thank you, and you may be seated. At the beginning of the pandemic, COVID pandemic, we were told if we, were, if we would do certain things that it would slow the spread, that it wouldn't eliminate the virus, but it would shut down much of the contagiousness, and at least everybody would not be sick at the same time. Thus, the medical facilities would be able to accommodate the needs. Then we were told, flatten the curve. And we meant by that that we would stop the graph from going straight up as it was going in those days, charting the number of cases of COVID, that we would flatten the graph out and eventually it would decline. Now, the medical authorities tell us that at least in degree this has worked that because people have practiced social distancing, because people have worn the mask, washed their hands, done the various protocols, that the curve has flattened at least two degree. They started out saying if we did nothing to mitigate the virus, there would be 2.2 million people die. Well, we did act. We flattened the curve. We did, in fact, slow the spread, and 200,000-plus people have died, unfortunately, but it's sure not 2.2 million. It's 2 million short of what they said. So in that, we have something that we can be thankful for. But we also know that attendant to this pandemic has been another pandemic, an epidemic of fear. That fear has been an accompaniment, obviously, rationally. People don't want to get sick with something that could take their life. And so we also have a pandemic of fear in the land. And my goal in this message today is to flatten the curve of fear in your life, to help you see and understand what God's Word teaches the Christian about fear. It's really a very important thing because, you see, God's plan for us is to have a victorious life. And we can't have a victorious life if we are encumbered by fear. And so it really is a very important subject. And I'm not just talking about COVID either because I'm looking at people recently. I've buried men, and I know what their wives, their widows are thinking I have to go through the rest of my life alone, perhaps. And how am I going to make it? And 
fear grips their heart. And COVID is not the only disease that can kill you. We still have cancer. We have all those other things. There are so many different threats, so many different things that can bring fear to our heart that are legitimate things. Certainly, God's people need to learn to deal with this in a biblical way. We all really want the same thing in life, don't we? No matter who you are, rich or poor, old or young, we all want the same thing. We want calm in our life. We don't want to live in the midst of a crisis. This crisis is going on for a long time, eight, nine months now. Who wants to live in the midst of a crisis? We want to live, in, we want to live with poise and not panic, with peace and not pain. We want to live with faith and not fear. We all want that in our lives. So learning to deal with the fears of life, to flatten the fear curve, is essential if we're going to enjoy our lives and if we're going to have the victorious life that God aspires for us to have. Jesus spoke about fear a lot. He is always saying to his disciples, fear not, fear not, fear not. He often follows it up and then says, be not afraid, be not afraid. Some of the most familiar verses in the Bible are found in John chapter 14, and you can quote it, let not your heart be troubled. That's a different way of saying don't fear. Don't let your Don't let the troubles of life overwhelm you. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, he said. And then he said, neither let your heart be afraid. And then I come down in that same comforting chapter. I come to verse 27. And here's what the Lord says. Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you, not like the world giveth. And then he says it again, third time in the chapter, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As I go through the King James Bible, if I were to take a colored pencil and mark or number the times it says faith, I would find that the word, pardon me, the word fear, if I were to mark the word fear every time it appears, It would be over 400 times just that one word, fear. Now, that doesn't count the times, and I didn't bother to look them up, that it says afraid or don't be afraid. So, over 500 times in your Bible, it says don't fear, don't be afraid. It must be an important thing for the Bible to address it over 500 times the same subject. And so today I'd like to talk to you about flattening the fear curve, living in a world of fear as a Christian, but being able to confront it in God's way with courage. Number one today, let's talk about fear as an enemy. Fear, the enemy of fear. Now, not all fear is an enemy, first of all. Fear is a necessary thing. Fear is a God-given emotion that motivates me to react in the face of danger. And so when there's a threat to my well-being, 
fear springs up in my heart. My adrenaline begins to flow when I see that threat, and fear grips my heart. It's a part of the survival mechanism. It's a part of the self-preservation reaction that the Lord gave to us to help us in life to defend ourselves. And fear is expressed through, first of all, a desire to fight, fight the enemy, to attack whatever it is that's causing the fear. And sometimes I can't fight it. It's something that it's impossible to fight. So we have the fight or flight syndrome. We talk about that. Sometimes the only thing I can do when I'm afraid is run, leave the scene. God put that in me as his way of protecting, me protecting myself, I guess I should say. And there are two kinds of fear. There is the fear that is genuine and real, things that we ought to fear. And then there's the fear that is imagined fear. It paralyzes us, but in all reality, it's, we shouldn't be paralyzed by it. Back in World War II, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. They destroyed our, most of our Pacific fleet. We were fighting a war in Europe. Over in uh, Europe, we were fighting Hitler and all of his Nazi troopers, his armies. And then suddenly, the Japanese attack us out in the Pacific, and they bomb Pearl Harbor, and you know, thousands of people die, and our, uh, our ships are all destroyed there, a great number of them. It was really a very dark time in America, and people were afraid. They were, it, it was a reasonable thing. How in the world are we going to survive a war in the West and a war in the East, a war in the Atlantic and a war in the Pacific? They're 10,000 miles apart, and we're going to fight two wars simultaneously. How are we going to do that? And people were, were understandably really, really afraid. Well, the president comes on the radio. They didn't have TV in those days. All we have was radio. President Roosevelt comes on, and he gives a speech that you can still read today. It was a very good speech. He was trying to calm the fears of the American people. But in the speech, he said something that's a very famous quote, but it's, it's not one we agree with. He said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now, he's trying to calm the panic. The president was talking about that just recently here. And that's what good leaders do. They want to encourage people by Tell them, look, the sky may not completely be falling in, and they want to they minimize the panic. And so President Roosevelt said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But very honestly, that's not true. Somebody said as long as there are drunk drivers and rattlesnakes and cancer, there are things that we ought to fear. I mean, there are things that we don't control, the drunk driver coming across the highway, stepping on the snake, the cancer that comes and a thousand other perils, a thousand other threats that come into our life. And we do fear those things. Those are legitimate fears. I watched on television just the other day, and 
people down in Louisiana are leaving their homes and packing up and fleeing because the second major hurricane now is coming up there to hit Lake Charles in that area. And now, I tell you what, we've got enough experience here with hurricanes. We're not going to, if they tell us that we better get out, we usually get out, most of us, don't we? It's a, it's a reasonable thing to do. Out in Oregon and in Washington, they've had the forest fires, and we watch as those fires move 30, 40 miles an hour at times in those winds, and they just go right across the whole countryside, and they burn people's homes, and people have to flee. They even leave a car in the garage sometimes. They leave in such a hurry. Now, those are reasonable fears, and those are fears we ought to have. Those are self-preservation fears. If I go to the zoo, I don't stick my hand in the cage where the tiger is, and the sign says don't do that. That's a fear that is a reasonable, logical, rational fear. On the other hand, the fear that I'm talking about today that is our enemy is that fear that paralyzes us, that persistent fear, that, that phobia, that fear that has no real basis, in fact, or a fear that some peril that maybe I should have a little bit of fear of, but I'm letting it now control my whole life. And there's a lot of those things. There's a lot of those things. And God's people need to read what old Joshua and what old Moses said, where he said, fear not, be not afraid, be of, be of good courage. Let's talk about some of the effects of fear, because I think it's so important to see how really damaging and devastating fear is to us. And I want you to go to the book of 1 John chapter 4, and here is a verse that I've read it I don't know how many times, but you know, I never associated it before with fear. It's 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 18. It says, there is no fear in love. Now, the word love there is that agape love, that love that doesn't think about itself, that unselfish, sacrificing love, the love the mother has for the child, the love the fireman has who runs up the steps of the World Trade Center and sacrifices himself for somebody else, the love of the soldier who will fall on the grenade to save the men in his platoon. The agape love. There's no fear in agape love, and it makes sense because you're thinking of the other person if you have agape love. Perfect love casts out all fear because, here's the phrase, fear hath torment. Fear hath torment. Torment has the idea of punishment there. Fear brings self-inflicted punishment upon us. Because here's what fear does. I'm going to give you five things that I've discovered as I studied that fear does. Number one, it overwhelms our emotions. It overwhelms our emotions. Counselors now are saying, and I was given this information through a counseling journal this week, they're saying now that after eight months of the stress of the pandemic, one in eight persons, one out of every eight persons, show at least one symptom 
of PTSD. In other words, people can't live with high stress but so long, and it begins to affect their emotions even on a permanent basis. It overwhelms us. Secondly, fear weakens our body. Fear weakens our body. The effect of stress on our immune system is that it weakens it. And at a time when I need my immune system to be functioning 100% to ward off these viruses and diseases, fear, stress weakens that immune system. The third thing it does is it damages the brain. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't need a whole lot of that. I know you may listen to me sometime and say he's brain damaged, but I, I, I hope I got, I got to keep on, I got to keep what I got right now, and I don't need to lose any of it. And here's what I read. I read an amazing statement. This came from a publication put out by over 900 physicians, 900 physicians in this network, and it was published on October the 5th, just, just a couple of weeks ago now. And I I quote from it. It's a long quote, but listen to it. Try to concentrate on it. In March and April, public health authorities were worried about the physical toll COVID-19 could take on people. One area received less attention, and that is the brain and emotional health. It was obvious to many physicians that asking people to isolate themselves could have consequences on their emotional and cognitive well-being. In other words, brain health. As we move into the eighth month of the pandemic, research shows that extreme social distancing measures could cause both short and long-term problems. A recent survey by Ipsos, which is the Global Market Research and Public Opinion Specialist, from Paris, France. So it's a universal study. They found that the pandemic triggered feelings of depression or anxiety in 64% of the population. 58% found it affected their sleep habits. And 57% claim it altered their mood. 54% reported a lack of interest in normal activities, and 51% feel withdrawn from loved ones since the shutdowns began. It is our social interaction with other people that bind us together and provide for much of our emotional and mental stimulation. Listen to this. I underlined it here. While stress and anxiety are a problem for our emotional health, Cutting yourself off from others can also damage your cognitive health. Loneliness and social isolation are associated with decreased cognitive function in middle-aged and older adults. We are now seeing how damaging isolation can be for brain health, end of quote. So what we've been going through and experiencing, social isolation, particularly during these lockdowns, it actually has a physical effect upon us damaging our cognitive abilities. 
the effects of fear, it overwhelms emotions. It weakens the body through weakening the immune system. It damages the brain. It confuses the thinking. When people are fearful, they don't think clearly. Tell me one earthly reason why for six months you couldn't buy a roll of toilet paper. I mean, the pulpwood mills didn't shut down. The paper mills didn't shut down. What was going on? You would think that would be one of the most (laughs) normal things to buy. But the whole nation seemed to be confused. I don't know why people were hoarding toilet paper. Confuses the thinking. And it devastates the spirit, the spiritual part of us. You see, look at the verse I just read to you from 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Fear hath torment. And it says, perfect love cast out fear. Now, just stop and think about that and absorb that verse. You know what that verse is saying? That fear and real, genuine, agape love cannot exist in the same heart. Fear and agape love are mutually exclusive. When my heart is filled with fear, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about anybody else. Boy, what an insight into human behavior. Our Bible is the greatest psychology book ever written, isn't it? And there's an insight into human behavior. If we have a society and we have a culture where all people think about is themselves, fear can take over. When I begin to think about the needs of other people, I assuage my own fear, you see. And then we also know a second factor. We know that fear and faith can't occupy the same space. We know that fear and faith are mutually exclusive. That when my heart is full of faith, it can't be full of fear and vice versa. And so spiritually, when fear overcomes and overtakes me in my life, out goes love, out goes faith, out goes those Christian virtues that are just at the heart of who we are as God's people and what we are as God's people. You know, the lockdowns that we had or the period of time here when our church was not allowed to meet or they asked us not to meet in South Carolina, nine whole weeks here, but it You know, that's that's nothing compared to what some of our friends across the country are having to do. This past Monday, our missionary, Mike Pepper, was passing through, and he called me and said, I'd like to stop and talk to you and have breakfast or eat or drink a cup of coffee and spend a little while. There's some things I want to bring you up on from uh, Sierra Leone. And so we met Monday morning, and he was asking me about the church here. And then he said to me, do you know what, Brother Bill? I live in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, I will pass six, eight, ten churches. And they'll be closed on Sunday morning. He said, probably, I would guess about 20, 25% of the churches are even open up in the Northeast. Now, they can meet. 
but they choose not to meet right now because they're afraid. The people have been told so many times not to gather in a crowd that uh, the churches are closed. He says, we can't go to church without driving past seven or eight other churches, and we go clear down out of the city of Philadelphia into Delaware where there's a little Baptist church that we've been attending. Now, that can't happen without taking an effect upon people spiritually. I mean a major effect because, you see, you can't separate spiritual well-being and health from a gathered church. For years in America, and particularly since the Internet, there's a certain group of people in America among evangelicals. They have the idea, well, I can watch it on television. I can watch it on the Internet. I'm hearing the preaching. I get the same message at home as I do if I come to church. It's true. You can hear the same message. I would argue you don't hear it in the same way. I would argue that when God's people gather together, there's a gathering of the Holy Spirit. There is an anointing you can't get when you're alone at home. But here's even a more important thing. Here's why God's, here is why the spiritual condition of the country has been deeply affected by, what, by fear because people have been told don't gather in crowds to the point now that they gather in other places, but particularly they say, they, they say oh, I can't go to church. Now, here's the deal. When God's people gather together, when you came here this morning, I don't know what kind of a mood you were in or what you were thinking or feeling, but I know this. If you will listen, if you will sing when it's time to sing, because you're doing that to the Lord. If you will pray when it's time to pray. If you will listen with all of your mind and your heart when the preacher preaches the Word of God, here's what happens. The fellowship of the saints, the being here with God's people, it encourages and it strengthens and it lifts God's people up. We are the army of God, or we're supposed to be the army of God. We're supposed to be an army. We're fighting the forces of evil. We're fighting the spiritual forces of Satan himself. And here's, here's the thing. There's not an army on earth that has ever existed that they would send soldiers out by themselves and say, you fight the war on your own. A soldier will become a coward on his own. He won't have the supplies and resources that he needs on his own. It takes a team. It takes a group. It takes a number to fight an effective battle. And we are suffering today spiritually because across America today, a high proportion of the churches still are not gathering together, and fear has gripped the hearts of their people. Now, in the light of all these facts, I gave you five things. What does fear do? It brings torment, 1 John 4, 18. It overwhelms the emotions. It weakens the body. It damages the brain. It confuses the thinking, and it devastates us spiritually. Is it any wonder then, is it any wonder then that our Lord Jesus Christ would say 400 times, fear not, don't be afraid, have courage. 
over and over. He tells us that because fear is everywhere, all kinds of fear, all kinds of phobias, and God is always pumping into us through His Word courage. Notice there in those verses in Joshua, there's one phrase that is in every single one of them. Did you pick it up? What is the phrase? Be not afraid. Be of good courage, positively. Be of good courage. Be of good courage, over and over and over. Let me define for you courage. Courage is not bravado. Courage is not somebody, you know, boasting and they, have no, they don't have any fears. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing one's duty in the face of fear. Fear is the emotion. And we can't control emotions striking us. Our emotions are under the control of our central nervous system. So something happens, it's a threat, it's a danger, and it triggers my nervous system, and it puts out adrenaline, and I fear, I feel fear. I may tremble, my mouth may get dry, or whatever the other physical symptoms that I personally have, but fear affects me. And that fear is under the control of the central nervous system. But courage is not saying, oh, I never f feel any fear. Because all of us do, if we be honest. Courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is going on when there is fear. And dealing with the fear, dealing with it as a Christian in the way the Lord wants us to. So let's imagine a scene here. Here's a scene where a young man, let's say he's 18 or 19 years old. He joins the Marines or the Army or one of the forces. And they train him in basic training. And he goes through his training period. And now he's ready. And they send him. And a war breaks out. And it's the night before the battle. I heard my father-in-law, who was in the Battle of Normandy in the southern part of it there, he said the, a few days before the, war, the, the Battle of Normandy, and they knew that they were going in, that the officers came through and handed everybody a copy of a will. And they told all those soldiers, fill out your will. And everybody signed and filled out a copy of a will, 18, 19-year-olds, because they knew people were going to die. So that would strike fear into anybody's heart, wouldn't it? So here's the young man. He's been trained. He has his weaponry. He knows the procedures. He knows what his duty is. And now it's the night before, and the officers come through and say, tomorrow morning at first light, we're going into battle. We're going into combat for the first time. He goes to his bunk and he lies down. But boy, sleep never closes his eyes. 
He lies there all night. Inside, he can feel himself trembling a little bit. He is so afraid. Do we call him a coward? No, no. First light comes. The orders come down. He goes out and he takes his position. And he begins to act. And when he acts, the fear assuages. The fear dissipates. And he goes into battle. He does his duty. See, he, feel, he felt the emotion of fear, but he acted with courage. Is there a risk? Oh, yes. There's a risk out there. Could he die? Yeah, some do. And others suffer casualties. But we don't call him reckless. We don't think he's a fool. What he's doing is a necessary duty for himself as well as for his country. And he acts, and we call it courage. And over and over it says, be thou courageous. It doesn't say don't ever feel, feel fear. It says when you feel fear, you act appropriately. And when you do, you'll have grace. I like what the president said the other day after he had dealt with the COVID thing. And, of course, he probably had some treatments that you and I wouldn't get. But he came and announced in his first news conference, he said, don't let it dominate you. Don't let it dominate you. I really like that spirit, don't you? That we're not going to roll over and give in to every kind of obstacle that comes our way as a country. But we're going to act with, with courage. We have some people right here that have acted with courage. You know, we ask our school teachers to come back and teach school. Every single one of them said, I'll come. They have to wear the mask, the face shields. They have to go through all these procedures and clean the desk and all that stuff all day long. And there's always the chance that one of those children will have the virus and they'll get it. Always the chance. Risk. But you know what? They do it. And they begin to act. And our school year is pretty normal right now. It's been about four or five weeks since we've had one case, one positive test. I think of our medical personnel. I see two or three doctors sitting here, nurses and so on. And they're out there in the emergency rooms and they're in the clinics and they're in the, and they're in the rooms at the hospital. And people are coming in and they know they have it. They know they have it. But they don't hide under the bed. They do what they ought to do. They face their duty. They're courageous people. They're unseen heroes right in our own midst. I close by giving you four things right quick. I hope you might write them down because I believe this is how a Christian acts with courage. Number one, and first of all, we discover God's will from His Word. So the very first thing I do when I have fear is I go to the Word of God and I say, what is the, what is the will of God in this matter? What is the will of God? Is it the will of God for me to teach? Is it the will of God for me to treat people as a, a medical person? What is the will of God? 
We discover God's will, and we discover it from His Word. We don't discover it through a feeling. Your feelings are deceiving. We discover the will of God through the Word of God. Number two, we then pray, knowing the will of God, and we depend upon God for wisdom and guidance. We call that faith, don't we? We find the will of God in the Word of God, and then we pray to the God of the Word for guidance and for direction, for strength, for wisdom. And then number three, we take all the necessary precautions. We're not foolhardy. We're not just trying to be risk takers. We're not filled with bravado and, and, you know, hubris and all that stuff. We take the precautions, whatever it is appropriate in that situation, and then we act. We do our duty. We do what God has called us to do. And fourthly, we trust God's providence, believing that God is always in control. We trust His providence. The, the old saying is, a man is immortal until his work is done. I have really come to realize that. At my age now, I know that anything can happen. But you know what else I know? I'm not going to go to heaven until the Lord wants me to go to heaven. And every day that he gives me is a gift of his grace. And I want to thank him for it. And I want to use it to his glory and the best of my ability. Bow your head with me in prayer, please.